The things that troubled the church 50 years ago or 100 years ago are not the same things that trouble the church today. Do you agree? In every generation, aspects of the Christian gospel uh, find some sort of harmony with the wider culture, and other aspects of the Christian gospel certainly find no harmony with the wider culture. And as a result, there is great conflict and tension at times. And so every iteration of the church has different tensions and points of conflict with the world. This has been the case since the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. Fifty years ago, the church was speaking into a culture that respected the Bible generally. Fifty years ago, the church was proclaiming Christ into a culture that had some biblical literacy. They kind of knew the Bible a little bit, the basic stories of the Bible. Fifty years ago, the church wasn't struggling with the kinds of questions that we struggle with today. The nature of truth, same-sex marriage, uh, gender identification, and so on. Today we have our unique points of conflict with the world. And so sometimes it's hard to be a Christian in this wider culture, right? It's hard to proclaim Christ in this wider culture. And we respond in different ways. Some of us get really mad. We become defiant. We um, become combative towards the world. You know, stick it to the man. That's our attitude. Well, that's not very helpful. Some of us are afraid when we think about the wider culture and opposition that we feel. I mean, we look at our children and we, we just kind of want to bunk up and we, we want to separate ourselves from the world and, and bunk up with other Christians and survive. I'm praying for Jesus to come back soon. Well, that's not very helpful either. When I look at the New Testament witness and the example of Jesus, the example of the early church, the example of the apostles, that's not what we see, either of those two extremes. We see people, God's people, who move towards the world in love. And we see God's people moving towards the world in love and speaking the name of Jesus. And that means at times there will be uncomfortable tension. And sometimes opposition. This is what the early church experienced, and this is what we can experience as well. So, the question I'd like us to think through together this morning, the question that I think this passage we're going to look at answers is how do we respond when the world opposes us? How do we respond when the world opposes the message of the gospel that we bring? What do we do? Now, before I continue, I want to talk with you if you're here and if you're not a Christian. First of all, welcome. We're so glad you're here this morning. Uh, We hope you find this place welcoming and warm, and I think you're going to find South Shore Baptist Church a a safe place for you to explore the Christian faith. And this is a great uh, opportunity this morning for you to kind of uh, dive into the Christian worldview a little bit and look around to see how do Christians think? How do Christians think in particular about opposition? And so, you know, I'm going to talk for, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes or so. You're going to listen to this stuff, and, and you might think, I'm totally nuts. That's okay. I might think you're totally nuts, too. So let's be friends. Let's hear each other out this morning. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit, and, and then I'm going to invite you to respond. Maybe pull someone aside here in the church, someone who maybe brought you to church, or feel free to come find me and talk with me. I would enjoy talking with you about this message. So, let's pray and ask God to give us understanding over this text and help us apply it to our lives. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we need you to illumine our hearts and our minds to this passage. So please do that, Lord. Father, we've, uh, we've come into this place with various concerns and burdens and heartaches and joys and praises on our hearts, and uh, we need to hear from you. So would you speak to us, Lord, in only the way that you can speak through your word? Speak now, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. It's page 1081 in your pew Bible. You can turn there. And while you're turning there, let me just review and kind of catch us up on uh, what's going on in the story. So in Acts chapter 3, you'll remember that Peter and John, they heal a lame man. Miraculously, they heal this lame man in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. And this, of course, causes a huge commotion, a huge stir in the temple. And then Peter gets up and he preaches his second message. He, he says, hey, the guy that you killed Jesus, that's the guy who healed this man. And by the way, he's still alive. And, you know, the uh, Sanhedrin, the re- Jewish religious council, they're not happy about this. So they take Peter and John, they arrest them, and they put them on trial. And then they give them, as they're on trial, they give them a very strict warning. They essentially tell them, they they shut down their message. They tell them, you can't preach in Christ, uh, you can't preach Christ anymore. You're done with that. Okay, so there's the opposition. Then they release them. And that's where our story picks up. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stands. And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Okay, so how did the early church respond to opposition from the Sanhedrin, this religious council? Well, notice they did a couple things. 
First, they banded together. Look at verse 23 again. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. That's the church. They banded together. And what else did they do? Well, they had a Bible study. Someone was reflecting on Psalm 2, right? Verses 25 and 26. And of course, they prayed. I don't know about you, but when I feel opposition as a Christian, this is not what I want to do. I want to orchestrate some sort of counter-strike, some sort of counter-opposition. I want to, you know, get, it, get the brightest, the sharpest Christian thinkers in the same room and strategize how are we going to, you know, uh, overturn this ruling by the Sanhedrin. That's what I want to do. Let's outthink them. Let's uh, outplan them. Let's outwork them. Let's find their weaknesses and somehow exploit them. But band together and pray and have a Bible study? This totally flies in the face of our American sensibilities, which says, do something, figure something out right now. These disciples, as you could imagine, probably felt scared and isolated and confused. You know, what are we going to do next? So what do they do? They came together. They slowed down. And they leaned into God. They looked up. They recognized that God was the only one who could lead them forward. So what do you do when you face this kind of opposition? You know, maybe the rejection of a friend or a family member because you love Jesus. Maybe someone smirks at you because you talk about going to church. What do you, how do you respond? Well, a good place to start would be to band together with other believers, to seek God in prayer and to look at his word But to really get at the heart of this passage, we need to dig deeper. What is this passage all about? Well, it's about prayer, yeah, it's about Bible study, okay, banding together, yes. But this passage isn't actually about the disciples, their example. It's not about the example of the early church. You see what this passage is really about? This passage is about God. It's about who these disciples turn to. Do you see that? So let me give you the main point of this sermon. It's actually two thoughts that are connected, that are related. I'm going to give it to you right now, and then we're going to unpack these thoughts. Here's the thought, or thoughts. When the Christian gospel is opposed, remember our great God and his unstoppable redemptive plans. When the Christian gospel is opposed, remember our great God and his unstoppable redemptive plans. Here's a second thought. When you have this big God in mind, you will pray big prayers. That's where we're going. So let's unpack these two. First thought, remember our great God and his unstoppable redemptive plan. Now notice that these disciples address God as sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. In the original language, that's just one word. It means master. Master, it's, it's the title, of course, given to the master in the slave-master relationship. There's lots of slaves, lots of masters in the first century. It's very common. So it speaks of someone with supreme and absolute authority, right? And so in saying that, that, that God is their master, they're also implying that they themselves are slaves to God. So right away as they address God as the sovereign Lord, as the master, they're putting themselves, they're posturing themselves as under God, they're humbling themselves. But of course, master 
isn't just master over these disciples. As we'll see in verse 24, he's the master of the universe too. Look at verse 24. When they heard this, they prayed their voices to, or they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So this God they're praying to is master over all things. He is Lord over all things. He is the creator and the Lord over the entire cosmos. That's the God that they are praying to. Now, can you think of a time in your life when you have experienced God's majesty in his creation? Um, you know, maybe you were far away from the city and you were, you know, it's a beautiful sun, uh, summer night and you're on your back and you're in some big field and, and you were enjoying God's beauty in the stars. Maybe you were studying chemistry or biology or human anatomy and as you were thinking about the intricacies of those subjects, you were just blown away that God has put this together. Or maybe you were taking a walk on a beach and you were enjoying the vast ocean. These are moments that leave us in awe of God, right? It's in these moments, actually, we're hearing the universe speak. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And what, what, are the, what kinds of things do they say? Well, they say things like, hey, look at his beautiful creation. Look at the God that is behind the stars and behind this vast ocean. Isn't he majestic? Isn't he glorious? And aren't we so very small? So the real issue, I think, that needs to be dealt with when the church is opposed, it's not, okay, let's get lawyers together and and make a strong case. It's not how can we, uh, you know, um, outwork them or outlast them. It's, It's not who should write the next book response and set out some very clear and compelling arguments. Those things might be good. The first issue that needs to be dealt with when we face opposition is our own pride. We, the church, need to get ourselves under the master of the universe when we face opposition. We need to listen to the universe speak to us a little bit and remind us about things, right? So perhaps the best thing we can do when you're you know, enduring some rejection from a neighbor or a family member or whatever because you're a follower of Jesus, maybe the first thing that you could do is just to take a walk and get outside. You know, get into Wampatuck a little bit and and look up at God's beautiful creation and let the universe speak to you a little bit and remind you that you have a master and he is not surprised by any of this. Of course, there's more in this passage. Notice the disciples quote scripture. Again, the, the passage that Blaine read, Psalm Two, the first two verses of Psalm 2. And what the, the disciples do is they take this psalm, they're probably reflecting on it, and then they apply it to their own situation. So before we get there, let's think a little bit together about Psalm 2. What is Psalm 2 all about? Well, the psalm speaks about the various nations and the rulers of the world that are plotting for control, that are setting themselves up against God's anointed Now, during the time of this writing, the writing of Psalm 2, David was God's anointed. He was the king. For most of Israel's history, they were a vassal state or a province under some imperial power. In other words, they were never really a superpower. But what Psalm 2 promises 
is that this is not always going to be the case. God is going to overcome every bit of opposition and he's going to vindicate his people and he's going to vindicate his anointed. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. Okay, so the disciples, they, they're reading this, they're reflecting on this, they pull it forward into their own present situation, they're applying it. Now, how do they apply it? Look at verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. There it is. So, so it's Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews. That's who is conspiring against the Lord. And who is the anointed one? It's Jesus. Do you know what anointed means in Hebrew? Anybody? Messiah. So Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, that's the one who they oppose. Now the disciples go even further in verse 28. Let's look at verse 28 together. Uh, They're praying, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What an astounding statement. They did, all these rulers that were plotting against Jesus, God's anointed, they did what your, your power, God, your power decided. You were over that. What are they talking about? They're talking about the greatest, most tragic incident in human history. They're talking about the cross. What they're saying is that the greatest injustice in human history, the death of God's anointed son, was the very plan of God himself. So God didn't fumble at the cross. He wasn't confused by what was happening at the cross. That was his plan. God planned it from the beginning of time to bring about something extraordinary as we know, which is the salvation of sinners. So here's the point of all of this. God's redemptive plans that are worked out in Jesus Christ, they are unstoppable. They are unflappable. All of God's promises that are related to Christ are irrevocable. They're going to happen. So any efforts made against Jesus, any efforts made against God's redemptive plans are ultimately futile. Right? So even if it looks like the world is winning, we know that God is ultimately over it. And he wins in the end. So let's massage this a little bit more. Let's think about this just a little bit more here. God is never surprised by any opposition that we encounter as Christians. God never says, whoops, didn't mean for that to happen, Godwin. Let's call the angel Gabriel over here. And here's Michael. What do I do? God never has advisors. God's never confused. He is sitting on his throne. He's not wringing his hands. He's sitting on his throne and he is calm. He is collected. Because all of his purposes, none of his purposes can be thwarted. Now, this must have boosted the confidence of these disciples, right? As they're praying, as they're encountering this opposition. Wow, they must have been so encouraged. And this ought to boost our confidence in God as well as we encounter opposition. You know, if this God can do something extraordinary with the death of his anointed son, Jesus, then can't we trust him with all of the other oppositions that we may encounter? 
Absolutely, we can trust him. He made something beautiful out of the cross, didn't he? And so he can make something spectacular out of any kind of opposition that we may endure in this lifetime. So let me say the first point again. When the Christian gospel is opposed, remember our great God and his unstoppable redemptive plan. That's the first point. Here's the second point. When you have this big God in mind, you will pray big prayers. When you have a big God in mind, you're going to pray some big prayers. You say the opposite is true as well. When you have a small God in mind, your prayers are going to be teeny tiny. So let's just say, you know, these disciples, let's say they, they did have a small God in mind and they weren't thinking about this big sovereign master of the universe God. They probably would have prayed for things like um, safety and protection They may have prayed for God to change the hearts of the Sanhedrin, uh, maybe uh, for the political demise of the Sanhedrin through the uh, Roman authorities or something like that, right? That's what they probably would have prayed for. But when you have a big God in mind, how do you pray in the midst of uh, opposition? Well, you pray for boldness, verse 29, and you pray for power, verse 30. Two requests. Let's look at each of these requests. Boldness first in verse 29. Now, the word boldness here is used five times in the New Testament. Four of the five times are in the book of Acts. That makes sense, right? Because if there's ever a book on boldness, it would be the book of Acts. And boldness, as you, I'm sure you know, it means having an attitude of courage. Uh, it means plain or straightforward speech about the gospel. Uh, fearlessness when you proclaim Christ. That's boldness. Okay, so what is boldness look like? What does it look like? Let me start with what boldness doesn't look like, okay? Boldness isn't anger. Have you seen a bunch of Christians that band together and they're just angry about something, just yelling about something? That's not bold. Boldness doesn't manifest itself in snarkiness or defensiveness. Boldness isn't an excuse to be obnoxious. You know, when I was a student at the University of Michigan, uh, there were these street preachers uh, my freshman year in college, and they would come to the middle of the campus, and they would hold these signs, and they would be yelling at us students as we're, you know, walking to classes. And uh, they were obnoxious and snarky and defensive, and they yelled at us, and they were super mad about everything, seemed like. And I was a young Christian at this point, and I, you know, all week long I'd be walking past these street preachers, and um, you know, at one point at the end of the week I was so fed up, guess what I started doing? Yeah, I started yelling back. I started yelling back at these people. Well, neither of us were bold that afternoon. We were just both being idiots. Brothers and sisters, let's not speak about the beauty of Jesus Christ in an ugly way. It's only going to fog up the message. Let's not be ironic. Just like we give thought to what we say about Christ, let's also give thought to how we speak about Christ. It's very important. Okay, so that's what boldness is not. So what does boldness look like today? Um, 
I think boldness first is an attitude that arises out of who we are as Christians. Okay, so let's think about this together a little bit. Our identities as Christians. On one hand, as I look at the New Testament, it's very clear we are indigenous people as Christians. We're called to a particular area, right? We're called to the South Shore. We have particular neighbors and family members and co-workers and uh, schoolmates and so on. So we're indigenous to a particular area. And so God has called us to rub shoulders and to connect with and love particular people that are outside the church. On the other hand, as we look at the New Testament, we look at, okay, who are we now, as, now that we are the church? We see that we are also pilgrims. You know, the New Testament calls us sojourners and aliens. This isn't, this isn't our home. And so God has called us to be holy and distinct and in some ways separate from the world. So here it is. The New Testament pushes both of these identities on us. We are indigenous on the South Shore, and yet we are separate in some ways from the South Shore. We're called to be fully immersed in some ways, rubbing shoulders with those that are in the world, and yet we're called to be distinct. And I think we kind of fall, most Christians fall on kind of both ends of this spectrum, right? Some of us are, yeah, we're we're fully immersed, and we've got lots of folks that we rub shoulders with that may not know Jesus, and we connect with them, but man, we just blend in. And we blend in so much that we have no witness to them. We're not bold. And the other end of the spectrum, some of us, you know, maybe because of fear or whatever, we, we pull away from the world so much because we want to be holy and separate and different that once again, we have no witness because there's nobody to be bold to, Right? And so what the New Testament, I think, does is it calls us to be both, to be fully immersed, and yet while we're there in those situations, in those relationships, to be distinct. You've probably heard some Christians or you know, church leaders you know, say things like, hey, Jesus ate with the prostitutes and tax collectors, so let's get in the bars. Have you heard that before? Oh, okay, so let's, let's examine that idea just a little bit. So yes, Jesus ate with the tax collectors and prostitutes. Absolutely, he did. But did he not have a powerfully distinct presence when he was with them? And so the question for us is, do we? So boldness helps to navigate this tension. Boldness means, yes, we're immersed, but we're distinct in that immersion. And and, okay, we're distinct, but we're immersed. Okay, so boldness is more than just a vision, though. It's more than just kind of a big idea. Boldness is practical. We see here in verse 29, let me read it for you. It's very practical. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So boldness here, as Paul described, or excuse me, as uh, the disciples were talking, um, they mean boldness about Jesus. Boldness about Jesus. It means speaking fearlessly about Jesus, right? And if you want, to, want an example about this, look at John, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 3 and 4. Look at Peter and John and their bold example in proclaiming Christ. They didn't pull punches on Jesus. They proclaimed him relentlessly. There's lots of ways this looks. You know, bringing up Jesus in your everyday conversation. 
talking about the way Jesus has totally transformed your life. Uh, asking questions of others. You know, who do you think Jesus is? Sharing about how Jesus is the answer to all of life's biggest questions. You know, why am I such a mess? Why is, uh, why is this world such a mess? Is there a solution to any of this? Is there a God and is he good? Does he love me? Does he care about me at all? But let's get even more specific in terms of application. What does boldness look like for you and me? Okay, so here, here it is, I think. I think boldness means taking a risk and saying more than I would normally say. Does that make sense? Taking a risk and saying more than I would normally say. That's what it means for us to be bold. You know, when I think about boldness, uh, I think about the different people that sacrificed to bring me the gospel. I've shared this story before. I'll share it again. Several hundred years ago, there were missionaries in Chicago, and they traveled across the Atlantic and underneath Africa and through the Indian Ocean to northern Sri Lanka, and they shared the gospel and planted churches and started schools. Northern Sri Lanka and, and these tribes in northern Sri Lanka, they came to know Jesus, converted to Christianity, and, and my family on both sides we're part of those tribes. And so I'm standing here before you as a child of God in part due to the faithfulness and the boldness of those Chicago missionaries. Is that incredible? About 30 years ago, my parents started telling me about Jesus. And then a few teachers at school told me about Jesus. And then Alam Jakob, a fourth-year Eritrean engineering student at the University of Michigan, Brian Langford, a campus minister, came to my dorm room and knocked on the door. They did not know me at all. but They started to get to know me and they started to tell me about Jesus. So thankful for these people, for their boldness in giving me the gospel. Who gave you the gospel? Who was bold in your life to give you the words of eternal life? Who gave you the gospel? Have you ever um, stopped to th- thank them for their faithfulness and their boldness? Have you ever done that before? Let me encourage you to do that. And God can use us in a similar manner too, right? Just like these disciples pray, we can pray as well. And so let me challenge you. Here's a, a takeaway from this sermon. Let me challenge you to pray for boldness every single day this week. Sunday through Sunday, pray for boldness, boldness in your speech. And then when God brings you those opportunities, take a risk and say something more than you normally would. Okay? Can you do that this week? Now notice that boldness isn't the only prayer request here. Power is the other one. Look at verse 30. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So when you believe in this big, sovereign God who's got an unstoppable, redemptive plan, not only do you pray for boldness, but you pray for power. I love this description here. You know, stretch out your hands. God, move in our midst. God, show your power in this church and on the South Shore. Now, the purpose of these power manifestations was to give credibility to the message that they were proclaiming. 
It's to give uh, credibility to it. It gives the message uh, authenticity. It gave the message credibility then in the first century, and guess what? It gives the message credibility now as well. God's power manifested in all sorts of different ways adorns the gospel that we preach. And so that's why we should pray verse 30. Have you ever prayed verse 30 before? Have you ever prayed this before? Now, a question we may have together is, okay, why don't we see these healings and power manifestations happen in our lives? Well, here's one answer. Because we don't pray verse 30 enough. We don't pray it enough. Maybe we think that people who experience this stuff, they're just weird. Maybe they are, but man, if the first century disciples were weird, then I want to be too. There's another answer to that question. Why don't we see healings and power manifestations today? Uh, We do see these healings and power manifestations today. We do. And maybe the issue is we don't recognize them or we explain them away for some reason. So we don't want to go there. But this morning, we're going to go there. People at this church have received fresh fillings of the Spirit. Look at verse 31. This is how God answered this prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow! They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which means we can be filled with the Spirit. Tomorrow morning, and it also implies that tomorrow morning we can't be filled with the Spirit. We can experience the power and the presence of God in new ways. Now, perhaps you were sitting in these pews, you know, in the last few years and you were listening to a sermon and there was no doubt in your mind that you were experiencing God. He was speaking to you. There's tears in your eyes. What's going on? Maybe you were, you know, sitting at the side of your bed and you're having your morning quiet time and it's kind of routine, but whoa, that verse just jumped out at you and it kind of hit you a little bit and God is right there with you. How do you explain that? The Spirit is filling you. It's a gift. God's power is being manifested in your life. This happens. There are people in this church who have been healed. That's God's power. There are people in this church that were once hardcore addicts or you know, substance abusers or um, you know, in the doldrums of depression, and God has pulled them out of that pit Put them on firm grounds. That's God's power. There are people in this church who were once arrogant and hardened and narcissistic and self-serving, and by God's grace, they are no longer those things, or they are continuing to fight against those things. It's God's power. Where does this power come from? Oh, okay, it comes from God. But you know, You know what else I I think we can say about these power manifestations that we've all experienced in this church? They came from your prayers. God was answering your prayers. You were praying for this. God said, okay. And he's transforming us. Just the other day, our elders gathered to pray over Linda Close, who many of you know, was recently diagnosed with cancer. We gathered around her and we 
prayed and we pleaded with God to heal her. We don't know whether God's going to heal her. I don't know. But we're going to plead and we're going to keep asking for God to do that. And why do we do that? Because we love Linda. Because also, because we care, we care about God's power being demonstrated to a watching world. We want the message of Jesus to be given credibility, to be adorned in some way. And so we pray and we'll keep praying for Linda and everybody else here who's gone through something. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you today to pray big prayers. Pray for healing. Pray for radical transformation. Pray for miracles. Pray for wonders even. Why not? And keep praying. Isn't it worth seeing Jesus' power at work so that Jesus' worth will be on display to a world that opposes him? Isn't that worth it? So let's pray. So what happened after uh, these disciples prayed? Well, verse 31, God answered. After they prayed, the place, was, uh, place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Wow, there it is. They got their power and they got their boldness. And the church grew. It's a beautiful thing. But something else happened too as we look at Acts chapters 5 through 7. Opposition increased too. The church grew, opposition grew. And it culminated in chapter 7 when the first Christian leader was martyred. So two things that I can guarantee will be part of the life and the history of South Shore Baptist Church. The first thing is opposition will continue. It likely will increase, perhaps in ways that we have never imagined. I think it'll be harder to be a Christian in five years than it is today. I think it's going to be harder to speak the name of Jesus in 10 years than it is today. I could be wrong. But I believe something else too. I believe that God's redemptive plan remains unstoppable. God is over every ounce of opposition that will come to his church. He's over. He's not surprised by it. Our God is bigger than all of the stuff that's occurring right now. Northern Iraq and Syria, all the persecuted Christians, God is over that. He is not surprised by that. God is bigger than what's happening uh, at Gordon College right now. God is bigger than what's happening in the churches in Houston right now. God is bigger. God is not surprised. He's over it. And he's going to make something beautiful out of all of those things. And his church will endure. So here we are, South Shore Baptist Church, God's sovereign. His plan is unstoppable. How should we respond? Well, let's pray for more boldness and let's pray for more power because we are confident in God's unchangeable plans. Let's pray. Father, these are the things we do ask you, Lord, um, because we are confident in you. We're confident in your plan. We're confident that all of the things that we endure and all of the slights and the looks and the outright rejection and the ways that we get pushed around, Lord, um, 
you love us. You're going to sustain us. And Lord, we pray more, more than just those things. We pray for boldness. We ask, Lord, I ask that every person in this room who knows Jesus would be bold this week. I pray that you would give each of us one opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us power, Lord. Convey your presence and your power to us in fresh ways. Fill us up with your spirit in new ways so that we may know Jesus and so that the gospel would be adorned. Father, I pray for those here that may not know you. I pray that they would consider Jesus, they would consider repenting of their sins and turning to Christ. I pray, Father, that you'd work in their hearts in that way, even now as I'm praying. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.